Well, the gospel record records a, a famous story of a young man who came to Jesus and asked him a question. He said to him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? However, Jesus not, did not answer the way he expected him to. His answer no doubt threw him off. He said to the young man, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now the problem was that the young man thought he was already a good person. He thought he was okay. After all, he had kept all of God's commandments, at least he thought so, from his childhood all the way up to his adult life. But Mark 10.21 records, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. It was really quite simple. Or was it? Did the young man do it? No. We read these words. But at the words of Jesus, he was saddened because he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. This rich young ruler, he valued his earthly treasure more than the treasure that Jesus was promising him. And it produced in him a sadness. Our question today then to consider is, well, what is the kingdom of heaven truly worth? We've spent a little bit of time looking at the kingdom of heaven. We'll talk some more about it today. But what would you give up on earth to secure heaven for eternity? This is the issue that Jesus is speaking about this morning from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. So Matthew 13 in your Bibles, if you would turn to there with me. Jesus has undertaken to teach the crowds, and he's gathered them all together to hear him. He's done so through the use of parables. And as we've seen, a parable is a story or an illustration that is used to convey a deeper truth. It's a very simple story, simple illustration, deep truth. Now Jesus used several parables to illustrate the nature of the kingdom of heaven... He's done so through the parables of the mustard seed and of the leaven. And then Jesus, he goes back inside to the house that he was previously in before, and he's going to go there to instruct his disciples. And he's going to teach them deeper truths about the nature of the kingdom of heaven. And so back in the house, this is where we find ourselves this morning in verses 44 to 46. Jesus tells them two more parables. Matthew chapter 13 Verses 44 through 46, the word of the Lord. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. Upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Two brief parables, both illustrated in the kingdom of heaven, and both are actually complementary, as we'll see. And the first is oftentimes known as the parable of the hidden treasure. Again, let's look at this one more time, verse 44. Very simple parable, complex truth. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, in the ancient world, there were no banks or safety deposit boxes. There were no investment firms. So if you had a lot of money, you didn't have really anywhere to go with it. 
if you had valuables, if you had money, if you had gold or treasures or family heirlooms, uh, you would find a spot on your property somewhere, usually away from the house, because in ancient times your, your homes were not uh, safe always from marauders and people who were going to break in and steal things from you. So you'd go off into the distance a little bit, off your, off your property or off your house, and you'd dig a, a spot on the ground, and you'd bury what you had and cover it over and sort of you know, hide it pretty well so that nobody knew where to go look for it. But that was, that was your bank, is the hole in the ground off your property there. Now, it's possible that you could either forget where you buried that treasure, or in the event of your death, your heirs might not even know that it's there. I mean, you might have written them down some kind of a note saying, hey, you know, ten paces off the house from this direction. I mean, maybe. But it's oftentimes in the ancient world that, uh, that you had treasure all over the place. And there's even still treasure buried in, in Palestinian lands right now that no one's ever found. So there, it was not outside the realm of possibility that you could be digging around on your property that you just bought and stumble upon a treasure that had been there for 20, 50 years, 100 years, and that was now yours. And that's what he's referring to here. Jesus tells of this man who's apparently digging around. We don't know why, but he's digging around, presumably looking for something else, when he suddenly finds a buried treasure. Now, what do you do when you stumble on buried treasure? Well, according to Jewish culture at the time, it was essentially the principle of finders keepers, unless somebody had a specified claim to the property. So, for example, if you were a servant working the land of a master and you found treasure, you didn't just take that for yourself. You went to your master and said, hey, master, I found some of your treasure here. But if you're on a piece of property that was either yours or just general, you know, if you don't know where it belonged to and you found something, you could keep it within, within reason. So this man, he knows that he needs to own the field before he gets this treasure. For him, in that purpose, he knows he has to get the field. So he buries it back in the ground And then it says, from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Now, some have raised ethical concerns about the parable. All kinds of scholars will poke holes and try to poke holes at Scripture all the time. But some of the questions that are arising here, well, is it it deceptive that he finds treasure and then buries it again and then goes and buys the field and comes back and gets it? Is that an issue? Or is it another ethical issue that he, is it wise for him to sell everything that he has just to get this piece of land for treasure? Is that wise? Well, frankly, these concerns are irrelevant because that's not the point of the parable. Jesus is not talking about a friend who did this and passing judgment. He's just telling a story. And so the whole point of the parable is to illustrate the exorbitant value of the kingdom. That's the point, Okay. And this value is further illustrated by a few other factors. Scholars have agreed together that this man who discovers this treasure is most likely poor. This is most likely the story of a poor man. Why? Well, because he's not buying a a grand estate. He's not buying acres and acres and acres and acres of property. He's buying a, a field, a little field. He's also not buying a house. He's not really buying anything that is of tremendous value. He's just buying a little piece of land. I mean, what's a, well, I, before this market, I would say a piece of, an acre of property was a reasonable price. You wouldn't go broke buying a, a small piece of land, generally speaking. But yet this man must divest himself of everything he owns in order to buy this little piece of property. And so we don't believe he's a rich man. He's likely not rich at all. And so this poor man, he needs to sell all that he has, but does he do so reluctantly? 
Does he say, well, gee whiz, I'm not going to be able to feed my wife and kids here. Or, Boy, that's a lot of money. Does he do that? No, he doesn't do this anything reluctantly or sadly. What does the text say? He does this joyfully. Joyfully. This is the greatest day of his life, finding this treasure in the ground. And, he, and with joy, in, in exuberant joy, he goes and just divests himself of absolutely everything because he wants to go back and get that treasure. It's joy. He has found this valuable treasure, and that becomes the most precious thing to him. What is Jesus teaching here? Well, very specifically, Jesus is teaching that the kingdom of heaven is like that treasure. He says it's like that treasure. Now, the last time we spent a few weeks discussing the Bible's teaching on the kingdom, we talked about the kingdom, and the kingdom is comprised of several different components here. Not to become too confusing, because I don't think it has to be confusing, but there is, generally speaking, a universal kingdom, and the universal kingdom of God is all that he has created and therefore all that he owns. So really, the, the universal kingdom is everything that God has made. That's the universal kingdom of God. But then you start to kind of hone in on a couple other things, and you realize that there's also a a spiritual kingdom or a redemptive kingdom. This has to do with the rule and the realm of salvation, where any time a person is granted saving faith and they become a Christian, the Bible teaches that they're transferred out of a different kingdom, a kingdom of darkness and sin and wickedness and disobedience. Now, is God over all of that kingdom as well? Yes, he is. But when we're talking about this kind of kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, we're talking about a spiritual reality where a person is, as we read about in Romans 5 this morning, they're an enemy of God, they're disobedient to the Lord, and yet he gives himself up, buys them out of that kingdom, and transfers them and brings them into his redemptive spiritual salvation kingdom. That's the heavenly spiritual redemptive kingdom. And then there's the future earthly kingdom, which will occur at the return of Christ. And we spent just a few minutes on that last week. And we're actually going to spend, I know I keep on teasing you with this, but when we get to Matthew 24 and 25, that's Jesus's most, I believe, definitive teaching on the nature of the future in the kingdom of heaven as in terms of his earthly return. So when we get to Matthew 24 and 25, I'll tap the brakes a little bit and we'll spend some time looking at what Jesus actually teaches about his coming kingdom. And so depending on the context that you read in the Bible, where the verses fall, what they're teaching, what they're talking about, it will determine which component of the kingdom that you're talking about. But in this parable here, in these two that we're looking at back to back, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven as the spiritual kingdom of his salvation. The spiritual kingdom of his salvation. And this treasure itself is the salvation that is found in Christ, which comes by way of the gospel. That's what he's talking about. There's no other application to it. This is not the universal kingdom that he somehow finds and sells everything because he already, he's already living in the, in, the, in the universal kingdom. And he's not talking about buying the future millennial kingdom, even though it has something to do with salvation. But more specifically, this is the gospel. This is salvation. Okay, So Jesus is describing this event of a person discovering the treasure of the good news of eternal life, and giving up all to obtain it. Now, David recognized the value of heavenly treasure. He regarded himself the the precepts of God. He says in Psalm 19.10, to be more desirable than gold. What's more desirable than gold? 
Well, David says the precepts of God are desirable more than gold. Yes, he says even much more than fine gold. David says, give me the best gold in the entire world. God's word is more valuable to me than even that. Isaiah intensifies that. He says, the Lord is the stability of your times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Isaiah 33, 6. So we're seeing the Bible writers equate God and the kingdom of God and the presence of God and the wisdom of God, all things spiritual that belong to God. He's saying, or the the writers are saying, nothing else in the world even compares to what God has for us and what God is worth to us. That is a testimony of Scripture. And here we see this man who is a poor man, we think, who stumbles onto the gospel of salvation He sees the infinite value, and he says, I need that, no matter the cost. And so that is the parable of the treasure. What about the next parable, verses 45 and 46? Jesus says again, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. This parable teaches Uh, the value of the kingdom, but with a a little bit of a different spin to it. Whereas the previous parable, we think that this man was a poor man. In this parable, we think he's actually a rich man. The Bible says here, Jesus himself says, this is a merchant seeking fine pearls. Well, how do we know that he's rich? Well, generally speaking, the merchant, their job, it was their business to to buy and sell valuables. And in his case, he's a, he's a, a gem or a stone or a valuables, a treasures merchant. He goes around and he finds pearls and other things and he, he buys them and sells them to rich people and that's his, that's his business. It was a lucrative business. At one time, pearls were even more sought after than diamonds and gold. Royalty would actually adorn themselves in pearls. I read one commentator this week that talked about uh, ancient kings and ancient queens to, to flaunt their wealth They would actually take a very expensive pearl, they would grind it up into dust, put it into their drink, and they would would imbibe the dust of pearls to flaunt their wealth. So pearls were valuable. They were the adornment of royalty and of the wealthy. And so this merchant is no doubt rich. He deals in costly stones and pearls, pearls especially, whereas the poor man simply stumbles onto his find, the wealthy man... This merchant, he has been, the Bible says, seeking fine pearls. I'm trying to find a bargain is what he's looking for. I want to find a good, a good pearl because I want to sell it to a whole bunch of my buyers. He would have traveled far and wide, high and low, to find the best pearls he possibly can until one day he's going through and he's either at a market or somewhere else and he discovers this pearl of great value. Now, he knows it's worth a lot because he deals in fine pearls. This is the pearl of great price, as they used to call it. And so what does he do? Does he buy it and add it to the collection? Notice what he's doing here. Now remember, this is a merchant who deals in pearls. He has to have an inventory, right? He went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's important. He goes from pearl merchant to sole pearl possessor. Changes everything, doesn't he? I'm no longer a merchant of fine pearls. I am the owner of the best pearl. Totally different now. Everything has changed for him. And again, Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven to the situation that the merchant is in. 
Now at this point, there's a little bit more that we can infer here. We start to see that there is a stark contrast between the treasure that's on earth and the treasure that's in heaven. Ordinary pearls and the pearl of great value, there's an inherent comparative value. Elsewhere in Matthew 6, 19, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. All of us have treasure here on earth somewhere. Maybe it's, it's different for all of us. What kind of treasure is this? Well, it's earthly. It's temporal. It's destructible. I mean, you buy yourself a nice car, it only goes so long. You buy yourself a nice house, it's got to be repaired. I was watching this, I was on the road this week, and I was watching late night TV of the home repairs. And they, I just binge watched like five episodes of these home repairs. And they go and there's these dilapidated houses that could, they were in their heyday, were really valuable, really beautiful. And you walk in, termites have eaten them to the core, and it's just a mess. And, and so th- these houses, they'll eventually break down and they become termite food. That's all of our houses will become that in the future if they're not already that. But that's the point here, is all these things are destructible. And truthfully, they're unsatisfying. Because the most wealthy people in the world, when they have everything you could possibly imagine, what do they want? They want more. Just a, just a few dollars more. How much more? Well, just 20% more. Uh, 10% more. I just want to get one more house, or one more this, or one more that. It's unsatisfying. It's unfulfilling. And truthfully, it's unsaving. You can be a Christian and buy and own everything you possibly can. You can buy every book in the world. You can go on a spiritual journey. You can do all these things. You can give to the poor. You can do everything you can possibly do for yourself. But in the end, it does not save you. And you'll go crazy in this life trying to do things, to buy things and to do things here, thinking it has spiritual value in the end. And truthfully, it does not buy you the kingdom. To bring in another verse, you can add Matthew thirteen twenty two: the worry of the world, the deceitfulness of riches. Jesus talks about that. We get so worried about our situations, this world, we get so, well, I'm, just gonna, I'm gonna save a, just a little bit more. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this thing and that thing and this thing. Worldly passions, worldly pleasures, all of this falls under the broad heading of treasures on earth. But what does Jesus say? But store up for yourselves Treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Then he adds this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's a real divide over what exists or over between what truly matters here and what barely matters at all. There's a huge divide. And so we ask the question, well, what, what truly is the treasure of heaven? What is the costly pearl? We've already stated it briefly, talking about it is the gospel of our salvation. That's certainly true. But let's, let's hone in on it a little bit further. What is this treasure? What is this pearl? And how do I apply this? This sounds great, Pastor. I love the idea of treasure in heaven. Yes, divesting yourselves of treasures on the earth. But what is this? Let's talk about this. First, heavenly treasure is salvation. Heavenly treasure is salvation. When you realize that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, when you realize where you are, I've been attaining and accumulating and building and building and building, at a certain point you have to recognize 
that all of my pursuits in this world ultimately have no spiritual value. I'm not saying they're not worth anything, there's no, there's no value in them inherently, because what we do with our money, with our homes, with our everything, that has value, there, there is lessons to be learned, but attaining that for yourself will not buy you the kingdom, it will not buy you eternal life. There are lots and lots of people who are currently residing in hell who've left treasures and mansions and empires on this earth, more than we probably care to examine. But once you realize that the natural person, the natural man, is addicted to sin and to self, and when you realize that our, our sinful existence is an affront to God, it's a rebellion to Him, that all that in the end earns you death, and suddenly the forgiveness of sins, and suddenly the eternal life with God, and suddenly the grace of God and the righteousness of Christ, all of that becomes precious to you. When you realize, you know what? All of this doesn't ultimately matter. In the end, what really matters is Christ. When you realize that, when that makes sense to you, when the light bulb turns on in your mind and in your heart, you say, that's what I'm looking for. I want Christ. I want His salvation. Yes, do I want to have a life here and now? Of course I do. All of us want to have a life here and now. But is this life here and now in view of eternity? Are we, are we setting our mind, our mind and our eyes on the things of heaven, the things above where Christ is? That's the real question. And again, those who find life in Christ experience great joy. Great joy. I'm sure that you know believers, and maybe you are yourself one of those believers, a person who stumbles onto the gospel like the man in the field. You weren't looking for it. You just heard the gospel one day, and you're like, that's different. And you, and you hear the message of salvation and you start to look inward and God convicts you of your sin and you realize, I, I need Christ. And all of a sudden, you, you respond with joy and with faith. Is it difficult? Of course it's difficult. But you respond, your heart changes and you say, I found treasure. And usually believers that come into the kingdom like that, they become explosive with joy. And they begin to tell everybody that they know. That's, that was the Apostle Paul. Others spend their lives looking for meaning and purpose and happiness. We all have the friend, and maybe you're one of those people who tried everything else under the sun. You bounce from world religion after world religion after self-help technique, and you have books on your shelf of every possible spiritual guide, and you're looking and you're looking and you're looking, and you just can't find what you're looking for. You don't know your meaning. You don't know the purpose of life. You don't know anything. And you're searching, searching, searching. And then one day, Christ comes to you. And you say, that whole shelf is garbage now. I, I know a woman, her name is Doreen Virtue. Anybody who used to be into New Age material, Doreen Virtue was the Billy Graham of New Ageism. And she had written books and tarot cards and, I mean, just a mega empire in the New Age movement. Got to the end of a certain point in her life and she realized all this is a lie. And came to Christ and now she's online daily repudiating New Ageism and trying to rescue all of her old converts to New Ageism out and into Christianity. She recognizes that all of that is garbage, all that is loss. Christ is the true treasure. She knows that now. And countless millions of Christians now recognize Christ as my treasure. Salvation is my treasure. Eternal life is my treasure. It's interesting because the rich young ruler, when he counted the cost of what his salvation would be, 
When Jesus told them what to do, he walks away sad. Sad. But the one who finds heavenly treasure sells all with great joy. Notice a stark contrast here. But when I think about the poor man who discovers the treasure in the field, my mind immediately goes to Matthew 5, 3. Blessed, happy, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because experiencing forgiveness of sins brings joy. When you know, beloved, when you know that God has forgiven you of your sins, and your sins and your past and your old life plagues you, and I know so many people, and I've experienced this myself, where your past sins, they just weigh down so heavily. They're like, it's like a weight. It's like you're stacking bricks in a backpack and you walk around with this weight of sin and this weight of guilt and shame. And when you realize that Christ has forgiven you of all those sins, He doesn't just remove one brick at a time. He rips the whole backpack off your back and says, I'm carrying this. I'm dying with this on my back. You are forgiven. You explode with joy. God has forgiven you of your sins if you trust in Him. But the joy of forgiveness, receiving a new spiritual heart, brings joy. I'm not the same person I used to be. Praise God. Trusting in Christ brings joy. Being right with God, knowing that your position is not based on what I do, but where, what He has done. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 It's not... not a blessed truth that we're, our position with God is now secure and good because of our faith in Christ alone. That He reconciles us. He redeems us. That brings joy. Or having assurance and hope of the future. You're going to heaven? Well, I don't know. I hope so. Do you trust in Christ? I've had this conversation with many of you through the years. I don't know if I'm going to heaven or not. Well, do you love the Lord? Yes, I do. Do you believe that Jesus died for you? Yes, I do. Do you believe He rose again on the third day? Yes, I do. Do you love Him presently? Do you love His Word? Yes, I do. Do you love this church? Do you love one another? Yes, I do. Well, I'm not quite sure yet. Trust Him. If all of these things are true, again, I'm not omniscient, but if those things are true, if you believe the Gospel and love Christ, that's evidence that you belong to Him. Rejoice! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Don't be bur- burdened down with guilt and shame. Is there a time for self-examination? Yes. There is always a time to examine yourself. But to be burdened down, doubting and questioning and agonizing, because I love Jesus, but I don't know if He loves me. That's not, a, that's not a reality. That's not a truth. If you love Christ, it's because He first loved you. That's what First John says. Rejoice. Rejoice. The gospel of our salvation is the message that Jesus has gone to the cross and paid all of our sins on His cross and earned forgiveness for us and eternal life for all who trust in Him. It is by God's grace, through faith in Christ alone, that we're saved. That's treasure, beloved. When you find that and you realize what that is and what that's worth, you want to give up all for Him because you realize how valuable that is. The second component to this, and I don't want to keep on giving lists and definitions, but there's just so many, it's like a diamond. You keep on turning it. You see rays of light that keep on hitting your eye. Another way to see this, the heavenly treasure, is also sanctification. Sanctification. Once you have been forgiven, once you have been saved, God begins to change you and transform you from the inside out. 
He begins to do a good work in you. This is the remaking of you, the old you, into the image of Christ. This begins right at salvation. As soon as you're justified, as soon as He declares you to be righteous, even though you're not, as soon as that declaration comes in and you receive a new heart springing forth eternal life, now He begins to change you and grow you and transform you. However, those who simply want a get-out-of-hell-free card, they don't understand the gospel. It's not just about getting saved and going to heaven. Yes, is that the ultimate prize, the ultimate reward? Of course it is. Because Christ is there. And forgiveness is there. And eternal life is there. But there's more. Because the gospel begins to transform you from the inside out. You're not just saved so you can go back into your old life and do the old things you used to do. And I would even argue that if you have a person who professes faith in Christ... And after a length of time, five years, ten years, whatever the time period is, if nothing has changed in them, if they're still dealing with the same sins at the same level, notice I said at the same level, because sometimes there are besetting sins that plague you your whole life and you have to fight hard to get rid of them. But if, if it's the same sin at the same level with no repentance, I would seriously doubt, do you believe the gospel that saved you? Is there really fruit that you've been changed? Because a person who has been given a new heart. That new heart has to pump new blood into your veins, doesn't it? Has to do something in you. You're saved, at least in this life, in order to become transformed into the image of Christ. We're no longer joined to the world. And as Romans 7, 4 says, you were joined to Him who was raised from the dead so that, this is really important, so that we might bear fruit for God. He saves you and redeems you so that, it's a logical conclusion, so that you'll bear fruit for God. People will look at your life and look at your testimony. You won't be perfect, but they'll look at you and they'll say something's different in you. And you say, yes, I found treasure. I found Christ. And Christ has changed me. You'll bear fruit for God. But your holiness, beloved, is valuable. Your holiness is great treasure. It's valuable. And it's expressed in many different ways. For some, the value of earthly riches and expensive tastes, that's, that's the thing that you have to fight against. I'm materialistic. I, I'm, I'm, I love my possessions. I love my things. But 1 Timothy 6.6 6 tells us that godliness, in opposition to the worldliness and the, and the possession of riches, godliness with contentment is great gain. If you have contentment with what God has given you, and you possess godly character to see these things through the right lens, that's great gain. I know lots of miserable, wealthy people. I used to be in financial services. I worked for a Fortune 100 company years ago. I've seen wealthy people who are miserable. I've seen poor people who are exuberant in joy. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Some desire self Self-betterment. I want to be the best me I can be. And there's all kinds of schemes and, and, and programs to make you better. Whether it's physical, they just they kill themselves, making their, their bodies the, the prime specimen of, of humanity. Or they kill themselves to become this, this spiritual, emotional person who's the, the par excellence. The, the, they want to be their best self possible. But 1 Timothy 4.8 says that while bodily discipline is of only little profit, you can, you, can make your, you can sculpt your body and sculpt everything. You can change everything about your body. He says it's of little value. 
Godliness, Paul says, is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Because here's, let me frame this for you. You can focus on building and sculpting your body and building and sculpting your, your personality. But what happens when your body breaks down with a disease? What happens when you become, when you become besieged with grief and trials and things that do, you just don't want to put on a happy face anymore and fake it? Well, when you have godliness, when godly character resides in you because Christ resides in you, then even in your weakness, even in your infirmity, and I would even add, especially in your weakness and especially in your infirmity, godliness shines forth. People look at a person who's suffering with great joy and contentment and love for Christ, and they say, how are you doing this? Your body's broken down. You've had lots of bad things happen to you. Why are you joyful? Because I have treasure, friends. I have Christ. But godliness... If you manifest godliness, true character in Christ, holiness, Christ-likeness, that's treasure. It's valuable to God. Isn't that what Peter tells the women in 1 Peter 3.3, who are swallowed up in vanity? Vanity? He says, let not your adornment be in the, merely the external. Then he gives a whole list of things. Don't let, ladies, your, your, your beauty be simply outward. But let it be the hindered person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which he says is what? Is precious in the sight of God. Godly character is precious. We get so wrapped up in the external and what people think of us and how they perceive us and keeping up with the Joneses. All of these things in the world that will try to sell us the lie that spending extravagantly on ourselves and indulging in our lusts and our desires and worshiping our bodies and inflating our egos, that's the best of life. That's what they'll tell you. Turn on the TV for five seconds. And that's, that's the message being pumped into your, into your home. That all of that is the best. But Jesus says, he who has found his life, meaning this present earthly life, he promises he'll lose it. You think you found your life and your whole purpose here? You've lost it. But he says, he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. You want to find your life? Lose it. I don't mean literally, my friends, but in terms of what you value in this world. Those who sell all they have will find the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. But here's the question then. You read something like that, that's radical. What do you mean sell everything I have? I got to have a place to live, right? I mean, I got a family. I, gotta, I, got, I have a wife and kids. Like, you want me to give up everything? What does it mean to sell it all? Does he mean literally? Well, maybe for some, for some. Certainly, he told the rich young ruler to sell everything and give to the poor. Well, why? Because for that man, his possessions were his idol. For that man, that's what he needed to kill off that sin of idolatry so he could open his eyes and see that Christ is most valuable. But does God demand that all of us sell everything to poppers in this world? I don't believe so. I don't believe that's a biblical principle for all people. But what does it mean? What does it mean? It means to detach ourselves from idolatry. To detach ourselves from envy from the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, of covetousness and earthly desire. 
When you see somebody drive by with a nice car and you go, oh, I want that. Get rid of that. Drive the beater that you have. It's good as long as it's got gas in the tank, right? I mean, in the end, those things are great. And if you own a nice car, well, then praise be to God. You can afford a nice car. Praise him. But that is not ultimately what will buy you the kingdom of heaven in this life. This isn't living. We are aliens and strangers. Pilgrims passing through in a dying world. What's the point here? Is it to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous? And No. We're on a sinking ship. It's our job to throw people life preservers and, and help them along and get them out of here with us. Does that mean this earth doesn't matter? Of course it matters. It's God's kingdom, his universal kingdom. But the goal is not just living for me. The goal is to live for the glory of God, to live for him, to bear fruit for God, to love other people that they might bear fruit for God, to be willing to lose all to be willing, beloved, to forsake all and give all and sacrifice all in order to be faithful to Christ. There might be a day, now I'm radical language here, we have to sell and give away everything? No. But there might come a day for you individually where God might put it in front of you, I want you to get rid of this thing. And you say, really, Lord? And you pray about it and you feel convicted and You see Scripture, and Scripture teaches a principle, and you follow that principle, and you become convicted by the Lord that that, this is not good for me. Or or I should do this or sell this to give to that. Barnabas, in in the New Testament, he sells a large piece of property to fund the church. There are times when God will call you to do something, to give something up, because there's a greater a greater value ahead. Now that's I can't tell you what that is. And you you can't come to me or the elders and say, Well, should I do this? I don't know. God knows. But there's a principle here. Must be willing. Sacrifice. Sell everything in your heart and hold it with an open hand and say, Lord, my life is yours. You want to you use this to bless other people? You want to bless me? Whatever you want. My life is yours, God. All of it belongs to you. I've sold it all to you. And whatever you give back to me is, is your prerogative. Thank you for giving to me. Thank you for my health. Thank you for my life, my family, my home, my car, my job. Thank you, Lord. Whatever you give me is great. Godliness with contentment is great gain. That's a biblical principle, beloved. Hang on to that. One more thought about heavenly treasure. Certainly it's salvation, it's sanctification, growth in Christ's likeness to bear fruit for God, yes. But thirdly and lastly, heavenly treasure is Christian service. Christian service. It's ministry. Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, wait a second here. Wait a second. Isn't this, this parable is not about ministry. This parable is about the gospel of the kingdom. So don't go sticking church stuff in there, pastor. But it is, actually. Let me tell you why. What is the only visible, earthly expression of the heavenly kingdom? It's the local church. It's a local church. It's the only thing that Christ has promised to build. He didn't promise to build anything outside of this. He's not building some sort of worldly organization. He's not building some random nonprofit. He's promised to build the church, which is expressed in local assemblies of believers getting together to worship him. Christian ministry is where we get to practice living out the commands of Christ. It's where we live as kingdom citizens here on earth together. 
This is why it's so important. It's so valuable to be together. Now, is it only what is done within the walls of our church building? No, of course not. Of course not. Ministry is done in your daily life. Soli Deo Gloria. All things for the glory of God. Paul says, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So as you live your life, do all of it as a kingdom of heaven, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's what Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is all about. Live in reality of the Sermon on the Mount. What, what are those things in your daily life that you are to be applying? But I will say this, that the local assembly, the church, becomes the gathering place where we congregate, where we assemble. Ecclesia in the Greek is assembly or gathering. It's where we come together to worship God primarily and to encourage one another to love and good deeds, as Hebrews 10.24 tells us. And I'm sure that you've all heard this saying of the American church, where 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Well, surely that should not be so. That should not be so. Just because that's a popular axiom does not mean it's a good axiom. But why does it happen so often? Why is that the experience of most of American churches? Because other countries where they're persecuted, that's not the same thing. They literally have to pull together if they're going to survive. Early church, that was no different then. But why is it that way for us? Well, my suspicion is that too many people in churches do not believe that the greatest treasure is kingdom of heaven. They believe the greatest treasure is to be had in this life. They simply do not value Christian ministry because they simply do not value their Christian faith. It's an add-on. It's an add-on. It's not the pearl of great price. It's just another piece of jewelry for the hobby box. It's something we add. And then when something else comes along that becomes more valuable to us, that's where we go. That's what we do. That's what we value. That's what we treasure. And I'll tell you, every other possible excuse not to gather as a church assembly, not to be engaged in ministry, not to be praying for people, not to be engaged in your own spiritual growth, not to be in discipling relationships or plugging in where you can learn and grow, when everything else becomes more valuable to you, you've lost the value of the treasure of the kingdom. But when a person discovers what heavenly treasure really is, and I praise God, I know I can, and I'm going through in my mind here, so many of you, so many of you value not just this assembly, but value the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. And I I praise God that there are so many in this assembly, and I pray for more in this assembly who value the kingdom of heaven and value the local expression of that kingdom. When you realize what heavenly treasure really is to be transformed by the gospel, when your salvation matters to you, it's the most important thing about you. When you realize that the, the value of growing in the fruit of the gospel, growing in godliness... And by God's grace, as a shepherd, I've seen so many of you transformed and growing. You, you want to do something nice for me? Tell me about how you're doing, for real. Tell me about how you're growing. Ask questions. Tell me, tell the elders how you're struggling. But we want to see, are you really growing in Christ? Because a saint that's maturing, that's precious. That's valuable. Don't just walk in here, put on a nice face and leave again I don't see you. Don't do that. That doesn't help you. It doesn't help anybody. Plug in. Dive in. Get serious about your faith. Get serious about church. 
Because in the end, this is where you're going to grow. And I've seen this for years. And I know other pastor friends who've spoken into my life have seen this the same thing. I do not know a growing, sustaining Christian who's not connected to a local church. Anybody I know that has abandoned and just do their own thing, they don't grow. Are they, are they believers? If they're saved by grace through faith, if they love Christ, of course they are. We'll see them in heaven, but do they grow? Are they actually growing in Christ apart from the flock? You're like a, a member of the herd who's straight off and you're taking your chance with the wolves by yourself. It's so dangerous. It's counterproductive to your faith. That's not to puff up this church. That's to tell you and commend to you the ordinances of Christ. That this is where we experience growth. This is where we get to practice the one another's. This is where we get to set on fire for mission. This is where we get to sing together and pray together and hear God's Word together. For some of you, your week is so tumultuous that Sunday morning is the only time you get to listen to a sermon. And so for you, maybe this is a valuable time to hear the Word being exposited to you. But a person who discovers heavenly treasure, they're engaged in the co-labor of the Gospel. Ministers are not those who are ordained to full-time ministry. That's not it. All of you are ministers of the Gospel. All of you. If you belong to Christ, you have a ministry to do. Now what is that ministry? Well, God reveals it to you in the way that you go. Lots of you have different opportunities. But here's the thing. When you find this treasure and you know what it's worth to you, you know what happens? How do you respond? You don't go, well, I guess I got some ministry to do today. No, you respond with joy. The most joyful people I know in the faith are active. They love Christ. They love the gospel. They read their Bibles. They're devoted to prayer. They're engaged in the local assembly. Are they perfect saints? No. But they love the assembly. They love the ministry. They love to grow. They love to be convicted of their sin as painful as it is. There's joy there. And for them, they've sold everything in their heart to follow Christ. What does this look like? Because, you know, at a certain point, it's like, all right, pastor, you're just kind of setting the bar pretty high here. Well, how do we do this? Go to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul tells us about this. If anybody was of the world and yet still religious, it was Paul. I would have loved to have gone back in time and seen the difference between the old Paul and the new Paul. But it would have been a remarkable thing, I believe, But Paul, the Apostle Paul, he was also called Saul, is at one time the most promising young teachers in Israel. In terms of religious elite, he was it. If you study his biography too, and we've done this before as a church when we did our study in Galatians, early chapter of Galatians, go back and and listen to those sermons. I bring you through the whole thing, but it's in your scriptures. It's in the copy of scripture there. Paul, he had everything to gain. Virtually, you know, nothing was beyond him. He's born to a noble family. He's trained at the best school he possibly could be by one of the most prominent and preeminent rabbis, a man named Gamaliel, who even in Jewish history is regarded as one of the greatest rabbis in, in their history. That was Paul's teacher. Paul had the best teacher. He, had, he was extremely devout. He was well-respected. He was visibly righteous. They saw Paul coming and the boy, that, keep your eye on him. He had growing fame. 
He had notable status. He probably had lots of money, too. Because you didn't get into those ranks of Jewish society as a Pharisee and not do well for yourself. And so he had everything going for him. Everything in this life. And then one day, he stumbled across some treasure in the field, so to speak. He encounters the risen Christ in Acts chapter 9. And the glory of Christ is so marvelous that it actually knocks him off his horse and blinds him. And he's never the same after that. And in Philippians chapter 3... He talks about his former life before finding Christ and then after. Philippians chapter 3, we'll pick it up in verse 4. He's talking about, about his, his, the glory of his old life. He says, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind about confidence in the flesh, I far more, circumcised on the eighth day in the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which comes in the law, found blameless. I was blameless, Paul says. Verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have, look at the word, counted as loss. Counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained it or have already become perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as laid hold of it yet, but I, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal, the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what it looks like. And everything we've talked about already this morning, it's here. You could take my outline, stick it here, and you'll see it. It's clear as day. He rejoices in his salvation He counts everything as lost. He has sold everything in his heart and given it over. He says, I don't care anymore. All that is rubbish. Look up the Greek word. It's worse than rubbish. It's dung, he says. In comparison to knowing Christ and attaining life in Christ, everything else is trash. And he talks about being conformed to Christ. That's his sanctification. And pressing on toward this upward call. What is that? He's in ministry. He says, everything I do is for that call. I, I want to make much of Christ. And I want to give my life to do it. This is what it looks like when a believer, and he said, no, no, he says, I, I haven't obtained it. I'm not perfect. None of us are perfect. There's no super saints. doesn't exist. All of us are sinners. Wretched sinners. Who've been forgiven much. Who've been saved by grace who trusts in Jesus, and by His grace, we live and put one foot in front of the other, one day at a time. 
It's, I hear it all the time. We look left and right in this assembly. We look left and right, and, and we feel like, well, I'm not like the other folks in here. I'm really, I really struggle with things, and I, I feel really... You know. Let me tell you, all of us, all of us have struggled in this life. All of us, apart from Christ, are dead in trespasses and sin. And all of us who profess love in Christ, all of us are new creations. And we're here to help each other to grow and to pray for each other and to encourage each other. There's no least in this room, beloved. All of us, the ground is level, as they say, at the foot of the cross. But what does it look like? What does it mean, again, to sell all to obtain the kingdom? It's where the gospel of the kingdom and the salvation of the kingdom and the holiness and the people and the ministry of the kingdom become to you far more valuable than anything else. Than anything else. Well, maybe you're listening to me talk and you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm, I'm not a Christian yet. Maybe you're here and you don't know Christ. How do I sell everything and buy the field, so to speak? Let me just read to you the words of Isaiah 55. He says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk. Without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear to me, says the Lord. Listen that you may live. What are the words of the Lord that are being spoken here? The the calling of the Gospel is to confess your sins to God. To confess your life to Him and turn from them. Forsake them. Reject your sins. Say, I hate those, Lord. I confess them. I don't want them. Forgive me. The Bible says if you do that and believe on Christ as you confess, you will be saved. And if you have believed, if you belong to Him, and you have believed, immerse yourself in Him. Immerse yourself. Read His Word, the Bible. Pray to Him. Confess your, your sins to Him and thank Him for forgiveness and thank Him for grace. Sing praises to Him. Worship Him together with God's people. Forsake your sinful habits in obedience to Him. Serve Him through loving His church. By the field, my friends. The harvest field. I want to close with a brief story. There's a man named C.T. Studd. He was an up-and-coming cricket player in England. Cricket's not big in America. It was huge in England. And were he to kept on going, he would have found fame and fortune as a professional athlete in England. However, he was converted under the ministry of D.L. Moody, and soon everything changed. He wrote this later of his, of his salvation Right then and there, he says, Joy and peace came into my soul. I knew then what it was to be born again. And the Bible, which had been dry to me before, became everything. As for his promising career, he said this, I know that cricket would not last, and honor would not last, and nothing in the world would last. But it was worthwhile living for the world to come. He later became a missionary to China where he served tirelessly for years and he famously penned these lines, only one life will soon be passed, 
Only what's done for Christ will last. That really could be his motto for his whole life. Eventually, he died at age 70 serving the Lord. And in a letter that he wrote just before he died, he noted this. As I believe I am now nearing my departure from this world, I have but a few things to rejoice in. And he lists them. Number one, that God called me to China, and I went in spite of utmost opposition from all my loved ones. Number two, that I joyfully acted as Christ told that rich young man to act. Number three, that I deliberately, at the call of God, when alone on the Bibby liner in 1910, gave up my life for this work, which was henceforth not for the, for, for the Sudan only, but for the whole unevangelized world. Then he concludes with this, My only joys, therefore, my only joys, therefore, are that when God has given me a work to do, I have not refused it. A man who lived his life in obedience to God. God gave him something to do. He says, all of it's yours. I've given up all. I don't care. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. And he died with joy. You want to die with joy, beloved? Honor Christ in everything you do. Sell everything in your heart. Because one day you will die. All of us are going to die. Everybody. And when you die, will you be able to say that you never refuse the work that God called you to do. It's different for all of us. All of us have different callings in this life, things we're going to do for God. Don't compare to each other. That's a useless thing. Some of us are given 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Whatever you have, glorify God with it. But do this, sell all in your heart and buy the kingdom. How? By giving your whole life to Christ and serving with joy to the praise of His glorious grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that You own all treasure. That this treasure we're we're learning about this morning is Your treasure, far more abundantly than anything that You have provided for us here. And even the disciples, Lord, they were worried that they have given up everything to follow Christ. and, And what did You say, Lord Jesus? That they would lose everything in this life, but in the next life they would receive a hundredfold. Brothers and sisters and family and houses and farms and eternal life. You've promised us, Lord, that you will reward abundantly according to the riches of your grace and kindness. That we don't have to worry about obtaining things here. That you call us to die to ourselves and take up our cross and follow you. And Lord, I confess, as I stand in this pulpit, Lord, So many decisions in my own life. There have been times I have not died to self. And I I assume I can speak for your people to say there are so many times we do not. We prefer the world before we prefer you. And so, Lord, forgive us of that. Forgive us of the times that we see the world as more valuable than you. Forgive, Lord, this sin. And embed in us a true desire, a true hunger and thirst for righteousness, a true love and an earnestness and godly contentment and joy overflowing and thankfulness, Lord. Implant those into our hearts as believers and give us exuberant joy for the things of God. We would walk out of here this morning transformed by truth that my life is not my own. I was bought with a price but the price that you paid for me, Lord, was the greatest 
as you sent your only begotten Son to give up his whole life for me. That you gave the most precious thing you had. That I might find life and have it to the full. And so God, I entreat you, I beg you to glorify yourself through your people here. Glorify yourself abundantly. Magnify your name through your saints here. And Lord, work with each one of us this week, today even. Work with us personally. Help us, Lord. What does it mean, Father, for me today to bring glory to You? Convict us and help us and strengthen us by Your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.